completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. It might sound ironic for the host of The Gross Show to say, but maybe we should all just slow the fuck down for a second. That's what today's guest is all about. A story about growth that's not about speed, but purpose. Kathy Sever is the founder of Fort Lonesome, a custom chain-stitching clothing company out of Austin, Texas, that dares to move slowly in a world hell-bent on speed. So, take a breath with me, relax for a moment, and enjoy Kathy's story. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and this is The Gross Show. Let's start off, if you don't mind, with just some foundations. Tell us a bit about your company, Fort Lonesome. Yeah, Fort Lonesome is kind of the most recent iteration of a couple stabs at uh, garment-making businesses that I've had. This one, we're focusing primarily on chain-stitch embroidery, which is a specific style of machine embroidery um, using machines that are, most of them are close to 100 years old. And we do a lot of custom artwork where we work with people to create imagery that they'd like to see on their garments, either on garments that they already own or on garments that we custom make for them. Got it. And so um, let me dig into that a little bit further. You mentioned chain stitching. So Fort Lonesome focuses on chain stitching. What is that? Chain stitch embroidery is a style of machine embroidery that is done using uh, very old machines that basically utilize the the first type of technology that was ever developed for sewing machines, which is a single thread application. Right. The needle in this case is actually like a little teeny tiny crochet hook, and it and it plunges down through the fabric and into the sort of belly of the machine and hooks onto a piece of thread or yarn. Yep pulls it up um, in, a, in a loop form. It pulls it up through the garment and then moves just a little bit and plunges back down to grab another loop. So it's creating a series of loops, creating this chain, which is why it's called chain stitching. But it's basically just taking that technique and mechanizing the process. Got it. Uh, it sounds sounds a lot more intentional, a lot more deliberate than, say, just your standard sewing machine. It's a more niche application. There's a lot of, you know, very intentional things that you can do with a, a regular sewing machine. This is this is basically just the, the sewing machine world's answer to like an Etch-a-Sketch or a drawing pad. Cool. All right. So give us a visual. Take us inside your shop if you can. Um, what's the space like? Uh, what is the environment that you work in? Well, we just moved into a new studio space. Oh, that's cool. We were working for years out of my garage behind my house, which is like a 300 square foot garage that we've converted into a workspace. But um, by the time we got around to moving the first time, there was five of us, sometimes six crammed into this 300 square feet of space and all using, you know, coming into my house to use the bathroom and kind of working around my 
kids and my dog and my husband and, you know, trying to to make it work back there, which we did. And it was great for a long time. But we moved into a, a building that was built for some friends of ours, actually, but we ended up moving into it. It's a large warehouse with two glass garage doors. So there's tons of light. There's a loft. Yeah. That's awesome. So I, A, I'm thrilled to hear that you kept the garage theme when you moved to the larger <laughs> space. That is the quintessential founder story, right? Starting in a garage, <laughs> overgrowing it, and then taking a little bit of the garage with you. Must yeah. yeah. <laughs> Must have been kind of a cool milestone to to walk into that new space for the first time and, and realize that, you know, in a very symbolic way that you were expanding. Yeah, for sure. Everything's sort of happened really quickly. And so sometimes I don't actually take very much time to to reflect on the growth that's happened over the last few years. So yeah, I hadn't even really thought about the kind of garage to garage continuum. Sure. <laughs> I like that. So actually, that's a that's a great point. I mean, I, I imagine you're incredibly busy, but uh, do you ever find a little bit of time to think about how you found your way into this custom chain stitching company and how you got to where you are? <laughs> um, yeah, it is sort of a funny winding road. I was working as a pastry chef when I got pregnant with my daughter. And after she was born, I realized that I wasn't sustainably going to be able to go back to that particular work environment. My work hours were really weird and very long. And I, I was interested in exploring the idea of being able to be home. And with her, I also wasn't really getting paid well enough to, to look seriously into full-time childcare. Right. You know, my, my wages as a pastry chef were barely going to cover childcare with not a lot left over. So I decided it probably made more sense to just see if I could figure out a way to work something out from home. So I grew up doing a lot of crafting and sewing. My mom was a home economics instructor who always had sewing machines and fabric available um, around the house. And I played around a lot with her stuff growing up. And I made friends with someone early on who was really actively exploring the world of starting a children's kind of apparel and accessories line. And and I met her through our mutual midwife and she needed somebody to help her make some samples. And I needed a lot of help figuring out how to navigate the world of business. Right. And so we kind of partnered up and before I knew it, things grew very quickly with the children's clothing line. It grew more quickly than I was able to keep up with it. And I not coming from any kind of business background at all, let alone from a business background, you know, with any specific knowledge of the apparel industry. And so I got in over my head very quickly and made a lot of mistakes and got into some financial trouble (laughs) and was trying to figure out sort of how to move out of that paradigm. Basically, I, I jumped in, got kind of swept into that world very quickly and just found that it, it it didn't mirror my desires artistically. It didn't mirror my desires from an environmental standpoint. And I was floundering. I was struggling. And so I backed completely out of that world of manufacturing. But people found me through my children's clothing line and started putting in requests. So I started doing one-of-a-kind custom Western wear and focusing more on kind of the classic 
um, old school style. I went to school for art, so I was way more comfortable sitting down and drawing somebody up a sketch of something that I would then embroider on their shirt rather than, you know, crafting these quarterly children's clothing lines that needed to stay on time and stay under budget and all that kind of stuff. So I had a friend here in town, Jenny Hart. She's kind of the rock star of the embroidery world. She had bought a chain stitch embroidery machine, but didn't know how to use it and offered to sell it to me, but without any kind of instruction. Right. So I bought the machine from her and kind of played around with it. And once my machine was was running and I felt confident and comfortable with it, I it, it just opened up a whole new world to me in terms of applications that I could use the machine for outside of Western wear. Yeah. And at that point in time, I rebranded my business and um, kind of put myself out there with the with the chain stitch machine seeing the forefront of the business model. So obviously there is, you know, there's so much complexity that goes into a decision like that and a path like that. I'm very curious around, you know, you're in this space where the path is very well trodden. You've learned how the apparel business works. You've learned how the standard processes go. And you make this decision in a moment when you're feeling pretty overwhelmed in itself to go a different route and to move away from fast fashion and back into sort of, I guess what you would call a slow fashion, a more deliberate kind of custom way of, of building out apparel. Can you tell me about that decision and why you felt like it was important for you to uh, walk away from the style of business that you were in to something very different? Well, for one, like I mentioned, I was I was flailing at <laughs> at being a an apparel manufacturing company. I just didn't understand it well enough to be able to navigate it successfully. The, the world of apparel manufacturing is just it's a leviathan. Like it it just doesn't there's there's not really a place for smaller businesses to exist within that paradigm. Yeah. Sustainably. Um not very many people want to exist within that particular paradigm. It's very heavily weighted towards low quality low price point, you know, you're competing basically with Target now. Yep. <laughs> when I kind of decided to to back away, it was kind of even before Target was even so competitive in the apparel industry. It's it's very difficult to convince people that $300 for a garment, like nobody's getting rich. That was just that that became something that I was coming up against over and over and over again was that there was a, a perceived value around garments specifically mm-hmm. that was just plummeting. And and people were so excessively able to pick up a pair of pants for seven to ten dollars without even thinking about it. Yeah. So that then there was this understanding that then a two hundred and fifty dollar pair of jeans, let's say, unless for some reason, you were a widely established name brand. For most people, the idea of spending that kind of money on a small manufacturer making a pair of jeans, it just didn't resonate. It didn't make sense. They felt like they were being gouged. People feel like they're being gouged. Now I feel like, you know, there's a growing understanding um, around those mid-level price points, the like kind of, I don't know, 75 to $300 price point yep. that that is just as what it has to be 
for everybody in the supply chain to be making a living wage. Yes. I mean, it's expensive. So let me ask you this. Um, So we have Target, we have Walmart, we've got H&M, and we do have this expectation. Is the manufacturing industry, has it passed the point of saving in that sense? Has it rewired our expectations to a point where we'll never get them back? I worry about that for sure. I have two children and my own daughter who watches me go through my day and knows you know, that we're not living high on the hog or anything like that. And that I work really hard to try to keep my business afloat. I've talked to her her entire life about how unrealistic um, the price points that she's grown to expect are. Right. And how exploitative those price points are and how destructive those companies are. And I feel like, you know, there's going to have to be a massive mindset shift to move away from those types of expectations. I don't like to be cynical because I, <laughs> I want to believe that there's a place for myself. There's a place for my friends who are creating small lines of sustainably produced garments. Like I, I really want to believe that, that there is a place for us. And I know that there is. And I know that there is a growing place for all of us. You know, I think that that's kind of the world that we live in right now in a lot of industries. Right is how are we going to kind of move through the phase that we're in right now where there's a lot of undervaluing going on of of art, of music, of writing. How do you then build the understanding of value back into the thing that you do? But yeah, I definitely feel that it's a long road to try to bring people back into a place where they don't feel like they're the ones that are being exploited when they're being asked to pay more for a garment that is undoubtedly going to be of higher quality and right. last longer. <laughs> well, it's the last longer part, right? So I think what's interesting is on the one side of the spectrum, you have the desire to build something that's sustainable and that that gives a fair living wage to the people who create it. And then on the other end of that spectrum is, you know, how do you make something that hits all those boxes, but is still not completely out of reach for someone who doesn't make a lot of money. Right. And I I wonder, you know, what your take is on that balance and how do you make sure that we retrain people to see these garments differently, um, but also that along with changing expectations that people can also afford them? Well, I think a lot of that is just has to do with the expectations of when and how often we need that we need to be integrating newness into our lives. Right. Like I think one, one of the more problematic byproducts that has come from the fast fashion world is the idea that they are just perpetually putting new looks out on their showroom floors. So like literally weekly. Yeah. They're they're putting new things out. So Whereas there used to be sort of a more seasonal model where you might feel like you had an old thing, you know, the next year or, you know, maybe the next season. Now there's a feeling like you're, you might be missing out on what the newest thing is if you go a couple of weeks without looking at what's going on in, a, you know, a Zara or a H&M. Yeah, exactly. So the, the one-two punch of this perpetual state of putting new things in front of people and putting them out there at a price that is so accessible. I think that a huge 
problem with that is just that there's a feeling like you need more things to stay relevant than you used to need. I think about my grandparents frequently because just in the years that have passed since they were, you know, kind of young and building a family, there was depression era people and there, the level of tending and mending and saving that they did in order to acquire new items. But then the amount of intention and research and, you know, pausing that went into any purchase that they made. And my mom held this, this concept dear as well. And she, you know, I think really strongly tried to pass it on to my sister and myself where my mom was a public school teacher and my dad was an artist. They, they were not raking in a lot of money, but my mom really felt like when she was going to make a purchase, she was going to do all of the research and she was going to get the highest quality that she could afford. Yeah, there was thought put in. It wasn't a mindless. I think with, like, with what you're talking about in terms of like creating accessibility, a lot of that is just the, the paradigm of what we feel like we need. We need so much less than we think that we do. And so we need so many fewer garments than we think that we do. And so we then could afford to spend more per garment if we didn't feel like we needed so many new things all the time. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And it's really interesting because I feel like there's a bit of a battle for the soul of the buyer these days. You're not alone in this, right? So if you look around, you see in all sorts of different industries, people are rediscovering these older, slower, almost lost art forms, whether it's brewing or coffee or uh, restaurants and clothing. It seems like we're in a moment, right? Why do you think this movement has become so popular in the past couple of years? Um, well, I think it's been going on for a while, sort of a slow build. That's appropriate. <laughs> I think it's a reaction to kind of like what I was just talking about in terms of everything is moving at a much faster pace now than it used to. And the, there's an expectation about keeping up with technology and fashion and everything in our lives is just changing so quickly. It sort of sounds cliche, but I do think that there's an intrinsic, energetic desire to sort of reset back to a pace that feels less frenetic. Right. And I also think that we have a general sense that the pace that we're living at right now or that we're sort of being expected to live at is unhealthy and unsustainable. And so maybe some of these sort of windows into the way things were done in days gone by or whatever, it's sort of a like an energetic recall to try to remember to find ways to slow your own self down because we're all kind of trying to race to whatever's next. How do you incorporate that belief and that philosophy into how you market the company, how you find people who have had that realization? Well, people ask me about marketing and, and the marketing that we have done has been very sort of passive and organic. And I think that that then is testament to the fact that people are really interested right now in figuring out ways to connect with how things are made or with processes that they're unfamiliar with that feel slow or old. Yeah. So it's a lot of word of mouth from the people who do end up buying uh, your garments. Word of mouth. And then, of course, now, you know, with social media and that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. that's kind of, I think, how we've found the majority of our audience. 
And you've had some uh, some celebrities and well-known people who have taken a shine to um, to your garments as well, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you know how, how did that happen? How did they first discover your company? Was it just a happy coincidence? <laughs> I, mean, I think it probably has a lot to do with the fact that some of the earlier work that I did was for Richard Linklater. His uh, significant other happens to be a friend of mine who was also the doula for my two children. Well, it comes back to that same doula, huh? <laughs> I was I, So I made some shirts for him, and he commissioned some shirts to be made for Ethan Hawke and Matthew McConaughey. And I feel like that is kind of where, how that all started. I, I know he wore a shirt on Jimmy Kimmel, and then Jimmy Kimmel wanted to have some things made. And he definitely kind of helped get uh, us some exposure, no doubt. <laughs> so, but when, when something like that happens, when um, somebody well-known spreads the word and you get a lot of incoming interest, how do you scale your business, which is known for being, for taking its time, for being slow to meet that kind of demand? <laughs> we don't meet that we kind don't. of demand. We've grown for sure, but it, it's an interesting position to be in where there's sort of a high barrier to entry. We, we're expensive. You know, everything that we do is very, 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 very labor intensive to the point where we have a hard time finding very many business models at all that we can even utilize to kind of help figure out how to build uh, infrastructure and, and pricing and all that. We have struggled with the fact that we are often basically turning people away, you know, closing down the website to new orders and telling people that we're really sorry. We, we want to be able to work with people, but we, you know, are maxed out. Yeah, it's unique. We have to balance out a lot of different types of work that we do. We do the custom, you know, costumes and custom Western wear and fun stuff like that. But then we also do a fair amount of production and kind of corporate work because it, it really can be more financially sustainable than the custom Western wear because it's those are the things that are so labor intensive that it's hard to actually charge what we would need to charge in order to make those the profitable component of the business. Right. So we rely on other types of business that comes in, but that business that comes in then also makes it so that we can't be saying yes to more custom orders. Our challenge, which I feel fortunate that it's our challenge, but it's somewhat unique, is that we always have to kind of try to figure out how to open and close the doors to work yeah, without kind of alienating our clients. Well, and it sounds f similar to the way you think about these garments. I think a lot of companies out there, they think growth at any cost. So up and to the right, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger. And it sounds like you're okay staying small. Is that true? Yeah, for sure. Right now it's so funny because we are small, but but it doesn't feel small to, to me. I, it was just me for so long. Mm -hmm. And now there's seven or eight of us and it feels big. And I definitely have gotten to the point where I feel like it's about as big as I am comfortable with it being. I don't really feel prepared or I, nor do I feel any desire to grow sort of past where we are right now. I feel like we're at a great sort of company size. Now we just have to, to figure out how to best use everybody that we've got on board and the space that we have now and everything to sort of create a nice, sustainable flow that we can manage. That's, that's the current dream. Nice. Well, let me shift gears for a moment. One of the things that I've heard about your company is that you really approach chain stitching like a storyteller. Uh, can you tell me a bit about 
this way uh, that you and your team work and, and how it's similar to storytelling? Well, um, a lot a lot of what we do is sort of interpretive. When we're doing custom work for people, we send out a questionnaire that they get and fill out. And it has questions about their lives, about things that they like, colors that they like, things that are important to them. And we then take that information and try to figure out how to turn that into something that we think is going to tell the story that they want to tell, but then also be aesthetically something that they're going to be happy with, that we're going to be happy with. We have to kind of reach down into our own visual library and pull out the images that we feel are representative of the story that our client is trying to tell, but that we also feel somehow connected to and then kind of create a, a design around that that does have sort of a, a narrative effect. Can you give me some examples of some of the more interesting stories that you've told through stitching? Well, we do. I mean, we do so many different things. It's always hard to kind of figure out the, the standout items. But one in particular that was so touching for all of us, there was a, a woman who we did a jacket for who had lost her dog recently, but she was pretty sure that her dog was revisiting her regularly um, in the form of a red-tailed hawk that she would see on walks. And so Mm -hmm. we created a portrait of the dog, but then sort of framed the portrait in the feathers of a red-tailed hawk. That's really cool. So, I mean, it becomes very meaningful. It becomes very purposeful to to the wearer at that point that it's it's more than just a piece of clothing. Yeah, that's definitely our goal. You know, we, we love what we do and we have a lot of fun with it. But we also really are trying to connect people with the things that they wear. And I would return to that idea after seeing the way that the apparel manufacturing industry functions. I feel like whatever I can do to sort of slow that process down, to encourage people to hold on to what they have, you know, changing it if they don't like it. Um, mending it if it's destroyed or sure you mentioned you're getting a lot of incoming requests uh, and some that you so many that you can't fill them all necessarily how do you choose the stories that are worth telling well we don't really curate who we do work for that I think that would be really challenging to say yes or no based on the project we we may get there because we definitely much prefer working with people who are coming to us because they're familiar with our aesthetic. Right. But but right now we're pretty much just taking orders. Like we open up for orders and then the orders come in. And then as soon as those spaces are filled, we close. Got it. So let me, can, can I ask you something I'm really curious about though? I imagine you've made clothing for yourself, right? Yes. Can you describe for me something that you made for yourself that, that means a lot to you? Well, I I haven't made very much for myself. That is for sure. I think it's the classic. Is it the cop cobbler shoes? Son has no shoes. Or precisely, yep. That, that um, so I haven't made a lot of clothing for myself, but I did make myself, and I embroidered a jacket, a, a denim jacket for myself, and it's a it's just sort of a scene from the inside of my head. <laughs> it's the, the the place that I sort of go when I close my eyes, and I'm trying to wind myself down or relax myself or de-stress. There's sort of a, a place that I go and I, I just sort of plunked that down 
on the back of a jacket to remind myself, I don't know, of, of that happy place. That's pretty priceless. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it, Kathy. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, you could rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps spread the word. And if you want to drop us a line, we're always around on Twitter, at The Gross Show. We'll be sure to respond.